Welcome to the Defense and Airspace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden gave his State of the Union address as Congress struggles to raise the nation's borrowing limit and his administration debates the future of uh, defense spending and how much it's going to ask for Congress from Congress uh, next month. Criticized for not downing uh, a Chinese spy balloon until it left rather than entered U.S. airspace, the administration now says the craft is part of a wide-ranging global surveillance force uh, that has been created by Beijing Uh, to uh, conduct worldwide missions. As I mentioned, Vladimir Zelensky thanked Britain's people and its parliament uh, while calling for combat aircraft. Britain is training Ukrainian pilots uh, before meeting with King Charles, who is an accomplished pilot himself. Uh, Zelensky then visited NATO, asking for planes and more weapons as Russia launches a new offensive and Poland rearms. More than 20,000 are dead and millions left homeless in Turkey after a devastating earthquake as desperate people grow frustrated at the slow pace of aid and the Erdogan government is accused of playing politics to suppress dissent as elections loom. uh, Our hearts and thoughts are with the Turkish people at this time of unspeakable tragedy and we certainly hope that the international community steps up efforts uh, because this is uh, not just devastating but going to be prolonged and not just for the Turkish people but the Syrian people as well I should have mentioned. Uh, joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin who holds the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, our producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy public affairs officer, who also is the co-founder of the ProVision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller, Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, uh, welcome. Uh, glad to uh, have you all on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors uh, our air warfare uh, coverage. Everybody, thanks very much uh, again uh, for joining us. Michael, uh, We're I'm going to structure this in a way that everybody is going to get a bite at the uh, State of the Union and balloon apples. Uh, but first, start us off on where we are on uh, debt ceiling. Uh, obviously, an important meeting uh, between uh, the president uh, and Kevin McCarthy. Uh, and uh, some, some, you know, a sense that at least we are in or starting into a, a negotiating process. Walk us through. Sure. I mean, not a lot has changed since last week, uh, and we're still only in early February, and this is a long way to go. And as we've seen, Congress doesn't do much unless there's a deadline in front of them, and the deadline is still a little ways away. Uh, but, you know, there is still um, talk, unfortunately, about CRs, and I hate those that talk so early in the year because it's very defeatist. Uh, and you know, we talked earlier in the year about how the framework that McCarthy seems to have agreed to, that if a CR does pass, that it has to be at 98% funding levels. And there's going to be a lot of challenges getting that passed, not only just in the House, but I just don't see the Senate going for that. And it makes a shutdown very, very, very possible. Uh, now they're saying that that would not apply to defense. So defense would not have to take that 2% cut in a CR. Uh, and they do feel confident they would have the votes in the House to do that uh, come the end of September. But obviously, they're not very confident that the Senate would support that. So I think we'll be approaching that crisis situation when we get into September. Um, and there's, you know, if they are able to pass appropriations bills, there seems to be a feeling that they won't be able to pass all 12 if they can. If, if, but again, we still have a long way to go. But defense is getting support again from both sides. Last week, we talked about how Mike Rogers, the Republican chairman of Armed Services, said that he will mark up to the number that he needs to mark up to this week. Uh, Senator Jack Reed, who chairs the Senate Armed Services Committee and is a Democrat, uh, predicted momentum on Capitol Hill to again boost defense spending beyond the level proposed by the Biden administration. And he's saying that not even knowing what number uh, is going to come over from the administration. Uh, McCarthy continues to be the wild card in this. Uh, He talks about reforming the Pentagon and finding waste. But I do, like I felt last week, feel better about where we are uh, in defense spending. It's just how they are going to be able to get it done by the end of the year. 
Let me um, ask you about uh, what the spending number is. You and I have been going past this. I've used the $30 billion number. I was then cautioned against not using that uh, number. Uh, and then in conversations over the past week, uh, it is going back and forth. Obviously, it's passback season uh, between uh, the administration uh, and uh, the, the White House and the Pentagon. And I have been assured repeatedly it is going to be a higher number because we know that we have to give a higher number. Uh, because that's in part what Republicans want us to do uh, as well. Do you have any indication on what that higher number is going to be, right? I mean, you mentioned what Jack Reed's been saying. You've mentioned what Ch Chairman Rogers has been saying. Um, you know, I mean, uh, you know, Adam Smith has been saying something very similar and got into a very bruising battle with his own leadership in the White House to get more money, um, ultimately. You know, so it seems like we're pushing on an open door. Any sense on where we're going on that sort of top line number at this point come March 9? Not really. I mean, I think a lot of what we're hearing on the Hill is a lot of conjecture, uh, especially when it comes to the data when the budget's going to be released. I, I, it does look like they'll meet the date of March 9th, so it depends on, but not all the material will be coming over. Um, you know, some people will felt it'll be much later than that. Uh, so I think it remains to be seen, but I think if the administration's smart, uh, they come in at a good number that at least keeps pace with inflation, uh, because that is their, you know, the administration has to do their part to govern here, and they're dealing with the Republican Congress, uh, many of which uh, don't want to govern and want to cause chaos. And the stronger that number is, the easier it will be to get this done. Anything briefly to be said about the uh, authorization of the use of military force repeals <laughs> that folks are talking about really quickly before we get to the State of the Union and, and the balloon debacle? I, I think the um, repeal of the, the AUMS, which is the authorization for the use of military force, uh, 1991 and 2002 uh, in Iraq stand a good chance of being repealed this year. I mean, they've been repealed in the House in the past, but the problem has been the Senate and getting Republicans on board in the Senate. But Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia, uh, who's a Democrat, and Senator Todd Young uh, from Indiana, who's a Republican, have uh, just reintroduced legislation to repeal both those AUMFs. And they're getting a lot of other Republicans now on board. And I see where uh, the Senate will have 60 votes, I think, this year. And Schumer has pledged to put that on the floor. Now, the question is, Will the Republicans put on the floor? Uh, will McCarthy support this? I think in the end that he will, because in the House, there's a real strong group of folks from the right and the left, folks as far left as Barbara Lee, uh, but reasonable uh, Democrats like Abigail Spanberger. But on the right, you have Chip Roy, uh, who's got a lot of influence now, Republican leadership, and Tom Cole, who's a senior appropriator and a very reasonable uh, leader. So I think uh, this year we might see the repeal of both those. Now, look, there are strong arguments on both sides. I mean, the people who don't want them repealed say it'd be reckless because the AUMFs gives the president uh, the ability to target proxies in Iraq, that are Iranian proxies in Iraq, that have been targeting U.S. forces. Uh, but the supporters say that, you know, that these AMS are out of date because they're aimed at Iraq, which is now our partner and ally in the region. So a lot remains to be seen. But if I had to bet on it, I think they get repealed this year. What's what's the real world implication of this? Right. I mean, this becomes like a salon conversation in Washington. Is this symbolic? Is there a real reason to do this? I'm just sort of hearkening to conversations that Chris and I uh, have had. Uh, about this uh, very issue over a protracted period of time. And all of us have discussed this, by the way, at one point or another over the last decade right. plus. Look, my, my personal opinion is this is symbolic. If the president wants to strike at threats to the United States, no matter where they are in the world, he will strike against them. Let's go to the balloon, uh, something uh, that was uh, both uh, symbolic and a bit of a messaging debacle. And we're going to hear from Chris. And indeed, I want to go around the horn with all of you guys to get your uh, senses, because there were a lot of different pieces, both in the State of the Union that we should dig into, but then of, of, of this balloon issue, right? I mean, it, uh, and, and what it means. At first, it was a threat. It was not a threat. You know, it's just a balloon. Uh, and then it's, oh, wow, it was a spy balloon. It was collecting, you know, and now like a variety of different stories, we allowed it to go across, not just because, it, you know, it would pose the hazard if shot down, uh, you know, shooting it down in Alaska was too risky. So we uh, you know, decided that we would study it. And indeed, it looks like the thing was being surrounded with all manner of airplanes from rivet joints to U-2s to fighter planes, you know, fairly incessantly. Um, great selfie with a U-2 pilot with a balloon in the background. <laughs> that was that was pretty good. Um, anyway, start us off, Michael, right, in terms of what we heard in the State of the Union, uh, how the president played it. Um, it did seem like it was a popular address uh, overall, uh, and that he got good marks, even if 
some of the rightmost members in the party didn't. The president had some good moves, like getting everybody to say, like, well, I'm glad we now agree on Social Security and Medicare. Let's, you know, everybody, let's applaud seniors, uh, which was a, a nice maneuver uh, after being uh, heckled. Anyway, sort of yeah. walk us through on some of the messages and how you think uh, it, it, it made the president's case as he prepares, obviously, to run for the presidency again. Sure. Look, I think you know, that Biden came into the State of the Union address at a much stronger point in his presidency, you know, being halfway through his first term than many of his predecessors. I mean, Bill Clinton had to give his State of the Union address after his party lost 54 seats in the House. And he had to admit that a lot of it was a rejection of the welfare state. You know, Obama had to give his State of the Union after losing his party, losing 63 seats in, 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 the, in the House. And again, you know, you can see that it was a backlash against government spending and, and the size of government. Trump had to give his State of the Union address after losing 41 seats, though he concedes nothing, of course. But, you know, uh, Biden only lost his party, lost 12 seats in the House, and actually gained a seat in the Senate. So he reminded his audience of uh, his accomplishments and touted the theme of let's finish the job. And you know, I think really um, adeptly laid out the things that he wants to see done over the next two years, knowing that most of these things are not going to get done because the Republicans are going to oppose him and he can lay the blame at their feet at the 2024 election. I mean, you know, things like um, you know, bolstering union protections, uh, facilitating transition to cleaner energy, uh, assault weapons bans. Uh, he even talked about uh, giving uh, public school teachers a raise, even though the federal government does not employ public school teachers. Um, but I do think it was a little short on uh, foreign policy. I mean, it really focused a lot on domestic. And I think there was some missed opportunities there. He really didn't discuss China much. He really could have talked about Iran, not only the threat that we face, but expressing support uh, for the people that are demanding freedom and democracy in that country. I think, again, it was a missed opportunity on Ukraine to explain to the American people why this conflict is important to us, the future of Europe and the future of the world. And to really talk about the world in general, that we're really at a turning point in the post-Cold War uh, era and to try and lay out a, a vision for that. Uh, at the same time, you know, it was a unity speech, which I really liked. But then he would switch to disunity by taking you know, the cheap shots at Republicans, for example, on Social Security. He knows that the Republican leadership, both the House and the Senate, have said the Social Security, Medicare, and now, frankly, defense are really not on the table. Uh, there is one Republican senator who had a proposal on cutting uh, Social Security, and that was what he was focusing on. Now, that does not excuse uh, the behavior of the Republicans uh, after um, you know the president uh, laid that out. I mean, I, I think that that Biden paints himself as the adult in the room, while and we saw Marjorie Taylor Greene, for example, give repeated outbursts during many sections of his speech, uh, including at one point calling him a liar. Uh, now we see. Senator Rick Scott of Florida, because Biden was visiting Florida yesterday, taking out uh, an ad uh, saying that Biden should resign, which is just you know not serious. And even you know Sarah Huckabee Sanders' re response to the State of the Union was just more MAGA red meat about you know COVID mandates, critical race theory, a long meandering diatribe on Trump's uh, trip to Iraq, and again calling Biden unfit for office, which again is, is silly. And I think the Republicans missed an opportunity there too to try and lay out how they're going to govern because they can do control the house and what their vision is for the future. Republicans have been trying to repeal, you know, obviously social security uh, and the great society since both of them were founded uh, right and frustration built into the conservative movement because finally it was Ronald Reagan who was seen as, as sort of attacking uh, you know, things that they had hoped Eisenhower would unhinge and they'd hoped Nixon would unhinge. Right. Uh, and in, in a sense, you know, both of those became big government guys uh, you know, until uh, until obviously we got we got to uh, President Reagan. Um, let's uh, quickly. I want to get your sense on the balloon because we, we really have we do have to move uh, and and get to everybody else in this discussion uh, as well. But just real quick, your your sense on uh, the balloon and how it played in Congress. Look, I think there's still a lot of questions uh, and we see bipartisan outrage on this. And we've seen this go through lots of different phases. Uh, at first, there was a lot of Republican anger. And it looked like, in my opinion, we're going to play into the Chinese hands by offering a resolution uh, criticizing Joe Biden, and they had planned to pass that resolution the day of the State of the Union address. And I think that's exactly what the Chinese would have liked to have seen, is that disunity uh, within our government. But cooler has prevailed, really led by House Foreign Affairs Committee Mike McCall, who got GOP leaders to agree to a bipartisan censure of the Chinese spy tactics. And yesterday, a resolution passed the House by a vote of 419 to zero. Uh, but you, you've seen still some bipartisan outrage. You have Senator Tester from Montana, who chairs the Defense Subcommittee, uh, is still wants answers. It, it flew over his state. The same with uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska uh, is still very upset. Uh, the Republicans are playing some politics with it. Marjorie Taylor Greene actually brought a balloon to the State of the Union address. Uh, 
Fortunately, was not able to get that into the chamber, although I did hear a rumor from one of the members that there was a balloon in the chamber that somebody planned to release during the speech and did not. Uh, but I, I'm, I was glad to see the Congress come together on this, but I think that this issue is far from finished on Capitol Hill. Uh, and, and obviously the intelligence community did brief uh, the, the gang of eight uh, on, on this that, that may have shaped uh, potential uh, outcomes. Chris, uh, and I want to quickly go around uh, and get everybody's take on it, right? I mean, was it a mistake not to talk more about China, for example? I mean, the president did say uh, we're going to do whatever it takes to help uh, Ukraine uh, win. I think that politically the president was trying to also appear, appeal to the Trump base I hear you. I know the problems you've gone through, you know, um, you know, uh, address the cause of 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 Trumpism uh, to a degree on the economic uh, front. But, Chris, I want to get your sense. Right. I mean, you've um, you know worked on messaging campaigns, obviously, strategic, tactical, uh, you know, in all elements of this. You know, folks even in the Pentagon look at this as uh, especially on the balloon thing as a bit of a debacle. Right. I mean, we brushed it off with it's just a balloon rather than a foreign espionage platform of, over the United States. We made it a little bit harder than we needed to, um, you know, and they, we eventually brought it down. What, what do you think in terms of the messaging and the president's tone and what he achieved and whether he did what he should have done? And then the balloon um, and and whether or not, you know, it was the right thing to, to, to spend a couple of days studying it as opposed to shooting it down right away and shooting it down over Alaska, by the way, which they found a reason not to a very sparsely populated state. We didn't shoot it down over Canada. We didn't shoot it down over Montana. We waited until it was six miles off the coast of South Carolina to nail it. There's a lot there. Let's start with the State of the Union. I I thought Michael did a a great job of sort of hitting the high points. I I would just, uh, I would piggyback on some of the things that he said. Uh, I mean, I think that it was clear that the administration wanted to um, lay the foundation for this idea of finish the job. Um, you, you know, if you believe what you hear, you know, we're, we're going to get more news in the next couple of days and weeks about when the president is going to announce, and you may even get uh, a formal announcement that he's going to uh, run for reelection. So I think from their standpoint, from a from a messaging standpoint, they wanted to, um, you know, really drive home that finish the job uh, message. Um, and, and I think that, honestly, foreign affairs and talking about allies and partners, it didn't really fit into that um, that approach. Um, I mean, there's lots of things that you could say in a State of the Union, but I think they committed to the finish the job uh, line of messaging. And, and so if that was their goal, I think they did a very good job. I also think that, you know, for, for those that like to count words and, and look for what words are in the speech and what words aren't in the speech, okay, you could say it was light on China. I, I mean, I thought he talked about a lot of things that did um, affect our relationship with China, that do, that does affect our relationship with friend, uh, partners and allies, um, and, and that does make America stronger in terms of how we deal with the Chinese uh, on an international scale. So there was probably more in there um, if, if you took a, a glass half full approach than looking for what he he didn't say. Um, so I would say it was, it was a win. But, you know, the reality is um, the, this speech was down 29% over his first State of the Union speech. Um, 73% of the audience was aged 55 and older, with only 5% of the viewers between uh, 18 and 34, if you believe what, you know, Nielsen has measured. So I think they knew who they were talking to. I think they knew what they wanted to say. And from their standpoint, they they accomplished what they they were after. Um, and then, you know, to Michael's point about the Republicans, I, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure that you even got a good, um, you, you know, uh, view of what the counterpoints were to what the president said. I mean, the, the Republican rebuttal, and if you followed Republican Twitter throughout the night, I mean, it really wasn't a point versus point. It was, um, you know, sort of the same red meat, the, the same talking points that you hear from uh, the the MAGA crowd. So um, I, I think it was a win for the president on the State of the Union. What was not a win for the president, in my opinion, was how they handled the, the balloon crisis. And, and again, looking purely through a, uh, a messaging lens, um, you, you know, the, there were sort of two sides to this coin. One was the tactical side of, okay, do we shoot it down? When do we shoot it down? How do we shoot it down? Um, that seemed to drag on. Um, you had the president say certain things. You know, he he originally in the week said they want, he wanted to shoot it down right away. Then later in the week, he said that, you know, sort of hinted that the military had had talked him out of it. I, I thought, you know, the, the administration could have done a much better job 
of communicating the steps that went into um, either shooting it down early in the week or waiting till later in the week. It, it left the American people feeling that there was a sense of uh, co confusion. Um, and, and you certainly felt that. Um, th this is not the first time that you've seen that. I mean, there does not seem to be good messaging coordination between the White House uh, and the Pentagon. We've seen that uh, um, in issues surrounding Afghanistan. We saw it at the beginning of the Ukraine crisis. And then now we saw it over the balloon where the administration says one thing um, and then spokespeople on the joint staff or spokespeople for OSD say something else. And then it, it takes them several days. You know, they had to roll out the Northcom commander on Monday to sort of kind of connect the dots uh, for, for media and for people that were following. So it was a missed opportunity. The other side of the coin, and this is what I think is the bigger side, and I, I'm interested in what Patrick and Dove and Michael have to say on this is, the bigger um, strategic narrative and where this balloon falls into the bigger strategic narrative. Um, for me, as somebody that I wouldn't call a China hawk, but as somebody that is worried about China, th this is a bit of a game changer. This is an escalation. Um, so I would like to hear the administration talk more about what this means for U.S.-China relations. Is this a um, is this an escalation? Is does this increase the likelihood of high-end competition and conflict? That's where I think the now there may be an opportunity. While I think that the administration was slow to respond on the strategic implications. I think there still is an opportunity for them to frame what this means in terms of the larger uh, China competition and, and what the U.S. needs to do to sort of regain the upper hand. I'll, I'll stop there. I know that was a lot. Appreciate that. Uh, and right, I mean, the way the narrative is emerging is, you know, we spotted this on Tuesday, we brought it to the president's attention, uh, or rather, we may have spotted it sooner, but we brought it to the president's attention on Tuesday. On Wednesday, he told us, like, when it's safe to do so, shoot it down. Uh, and and then we end up in Saturday, uh, uh, and um, you know ultimately it's it's not a threat, right? And so there was this concern about okay, wow, like even when this happens, we're not uh, regarding this uh, as a threat, and then not having better messaging around it, even though there were a lot of extremely talented messengers around the president. You know, we're mutual friends with John Kirby and have an enormous amount of admiration for him. Pat Ryder is somebody with excellent chops, uh, and is you know so everybody's trying hard, and yet. Um, we we sort of, uh, you know, managed to still sort of step on it, underscoring whether or not we're taking the threat as seriously. Like we looked at it as it's just a balloon uh, as opposed to, wait a minute, you know, this may be a near space capability, uh, for example, right? Uh, Ron Epstein on our Sunday show sort of uh, talked about it that way. And we use aerial systems, right? I mean, we use the U2 because it gives you better fidelity, uh, as we discussed on the on the Air Power Roundtable. Uh, yesterday with Heather Penny. Um, Bongo, the, the only thing I would add, though, is, I, I mean, I, I do believe this caught the Pentagon by surprise. I mean, w whether they've tracked these before, whether they they saw it coming, I, I don't think we were ready tactically to provide options to the Secretary of Defense and to the, the White House in, in a way that, um, you know, would have set up um, for coherent messaging, right? I mean, there's that that saying that sort of truth makes the, the best PR. In this case, truth made for the worst PR because the truth was we were confused. We didn't know what we wanted to do. We didn't know the best time. We didn't know, it was it a threat? Was it not a threat? And I mean, that right. really played out in, in the messaging. So that's the tactical spade work that, that we need to do and then try to reframe it strategically. Um, I want to uh, go uh, to Dove and to Patrick to get your sense, right? I mean, uh, you know, State of the Union, whether the messages were right, balloon, and how we handled them on what it uh, tells us. Patrick, last week, uh, you were pretty thoughtful about, you know, the, the obvious messages uh, on, on this, even though now there are folks who are saying, well, I mean, this was the strategic support force, uh, you know, may not have been blessed by she. My point is it is completely irrelevant. They still flew it over the United States. There was another one that flew over uh, Latin America. There were others that have flown over Taiwan, uh, and now the United States acknowledging this is a capability. Dove, start us off both and get your give us your sense real quick on both SOTU uh, as well as uh, the balloon incident. And Patrick, want to get your uh, take before uh, we uh, go on uh, and get into uh, you know Zelensky's visit to the UK uh, to uh, NATO, uh, then to get a roundup on on uh, Asia certainly because there's a lot more news uh, that we should be discussing there. Go ahead. So uh, on so too, the only things I'd like to add are, uh, as you heard, um, he seemed to be pitching this to an older audience. And uh, the older audience very often has tended to support uh, the Republicans. Uh, and 
if you look at the the, the pitch on unions, uh, the pitch on the working class, it's clear that what he was trying to do, and I think perhaps with success, I mean, we won't know for sure uh, till polls come out and more important till elections happen, but it seems that he was trying to wean away part of the traditional democratic uh, support that has gone over to the Republicans over the last really couple of decades. And in that respect, I think he, he certainly made a good try. Uh, on uh, China and generally on allies, I think uh, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with what's already been said about China. I think that given that we know that the Europeans, uh, with a strong exception of the British and to some extent the French, uh, are uh, sort of backing away a little bit, and when I guess it's more Germans than anybody else, he should have said more about Ukraine. It was really, really important. And, and he didn't. And it was a reflection again of what happened at the very outset of the administration when OMB issued its budget preface and didn't have a word about defense at all. And that I think is a little bit troubling. Um, so uh, let me leave it that part of that. On China and the balloon, um, as I understand it, uh, Chairman McCall, when he was having uh, the closed hearing uh, with uh, DOD representatives pointed out that, uh, you know, this balloon had flown over the Aleutians. It may have even flown over the Pribilof Islands. This is all U.S. territory. So the question then becomes, why didn't they stop it then or over Alaska? You know, they could, what would happen if we were hit by a, a, a missile? Wouldn't we tell people to clear out if we knew it was coming and if we had the time to do it? This was a slow moving system. We could have told people to clear out like we told them to clear out in the face of a hurricane. Weren't all that many people to begin with. And then DOD started saying their representatives at open hearings, well, you know, we, we, we waited until it landed in the Atlantic because it was too hard to do it in the Bering Sea. How did they know it would get to the Atlantic? They didn't know which way the balloon was going until it got there. There are some very, very real serious holes in what they've said, which goes beyond messaging. I think it goes to Chris's point about the fact that they really messed this one up big time. Now, one way to, to start to compensate for this disaster, and I do think it's a disaster because what message are you sending to the Chinese and indeed to the world is what the defense budget will look like. If they come in, even at just no real uh, decline and just comp compensating for inflation, what are they telling the world about America's determination to really face off with the Chinese when everybody says the Chinese provocation was very real? This is their opportunity. And so, you know, the DOD position over the last couple of years has been, well, we know Senate will add, we know Congress will add money, so it's not a disaster. That's not good enough anymore. It has to be an administration message. We're going to spend more money because we will not put up with these sorts of provocations and we will come up with a budget that is clearly intended to deter not the Russians or the Iranians, but especially the Chinese. Um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And that was kind of the point of my editorial, right? A lot of Americans are asking, you know, before we even get to spending more money or 30 billion, what are we getting for 817 billion if we don't have the ability or the capability to stop something like this? And worse, this, the signal it sends to allies and partners, they're going to ask, well, wait a minute, are you going to defend us if you won't even defend yourself uh, from a, a threat like this? Really briefly, uh, uh, Dove, I want to just ask you also, uh, and Patrick, thanks for your patience, uh, is uh, the Buy American message, right? I mean, I understand that when highways are made, it should have American steel and American concrete in it. But at the end of the day, there was no line in there that we will, you know, have our allies and partners and our allies and partners are concerned in the wake of uh, the climate measure and the kind of United States return uh, really moving away from the entire free trading system much more to a buy American uh, right uh, subsidization of key industries kind of mindset. Uh, even if we did it tacitly, we weren't doing it. Uh, and I'm glad that we are doing it. And it's clear to outline that. Was it a mistake to, to, to have the buy American rhetoric in there the way it was without sort of trying to modify it uh, at all when it comes to armaments, in, in which case, you know, where we really do depend on our allies and partners for capability? Well, you could say it was a mistake, and I personally believe it was. But if you go back to what the intent of the speech was and who he was trying to attract, Buy America, again, attracts the, the MAGA crowd. 
And if he's trying to draw off the MAGA crowd, the last thing he would want to say is, well, we need to buy anything foreign. I right. think that was behind it. But the truth of the matter is, and I've argued this before, both on this podcast and in writing, that the risk of losing some technology to the Chinese that I probably have already stolen it is far less great than the benefit of working closely with high tech allies so that we could jointly synergize and come up with developments right. far more quickly than we have up to now. Yeah, I know uh, uh, Cervello would say uh, we should not be waiting for the budget in order to, to do this, uh, you know, consistent with some of our conversations. Patrick, you've been extremely patient. Give us give us your sense. Was it a mistake for the president not to talk uh, about China more prominently? Just other thoughts on the State of the Union, as well as uh, the balloon debacle uh, and and what it uh, really uh, tells us, right? I mean, if we did get a lot of valuable intelligence on how it was communicating, right? I mean, there's a lot to be said for that. Uh, although presumably we could have done that a little bit earlier in this process as, as, as well. From your standpoint, what are sort of the key key takeaways, the successes, as well as the failures from your, your point of view? Well, as somebody who deals with international security, my natural bias is always to uh, frown upon domestic speeches. And this was largely a domestic speech. Ukraine, China, technology, those were the three exceptions, really, when you came to uh, foreign policy. The China, let me, it's worth parsing the words that the president did use on China, because I think the main message here and the extent to, he had a message for allies and for Beijing, it it was to basically counter and puncture, if you will, um, the main talking point, the main mindset, uh, really, that uh, is driving Chinese policy from a U.S. government perspective. And that is that the Chinese leaders, the party leaders, think that China's rising and we're declining. And the, and the Biden administration is obsessed with subverting that, with under undermining that theme. And so all of the, you know, the, the few remarks that the president made on China are all oriented towards that. So, and that was during the speech when he said, we're in the strongest position ever to compete. Um, you know, we can, we can argue about that, but, but he was clearly putting out his message that no, we're strong, we're rising, we're not declining. Uh, and then afterward, he did uh, the interview with Judy Woodruff, um, this is getting a lot of attention in China. In fact, the Chinese were demanding an apology from the White House when he offered that there's nobody in the world, no other leader would want Xi Jinping's job. He's, I don't think he's wrong. I mean, it's, it's a slight exaggeration, but the, the point is, yeah, it's, there are a lot of headaches. But where the president is not fully truthful on that point is that Xi Jinping also has all the levers, all the power uh, in China as, as much more than anyone to do things about it, for instance, on the economy and economic growth, where we think they're so weak. Um, but a lot of China watchers say, no, they're going to muddle through just fine because the CCP and headed by Xi, they control the levers. Um, we'll see how that plays out. But that's sort of the narrative and the argument going on. Yes, there should have been a lot more on foreign and defense policy, but I'm invariably disappointed by State of the Union addresses when I look for foreign and defense policy. They're mostly toward the domestic audience. Um, I, I want to um, take uh, this uh, opportunity, uh, Patrick, to give, give us and and uh, and uh, Dove, I'll, I'll uh, come to you uh, in a moment uh, to talk a little bit uh, about Ukraine uh, as well. But now that I've, I've got you to talk a little bit about some of the headlines uh, from Asia, how this played with the Chinese. Uh, I think it takes an enormous amount of chutzpah uh, to protest the shoot down of your spy drone. Uh, a, a craft, obviously, that was being controlled. We've heard from uh, former defense secretary and former um, uh, CIA chief, Leon Panetta, that it was being controlled. Uh, and other leaders have said that it was being controlled by uh, Beijing. It was not accidental. It went over uh, the nation's uh, missile fields, uh, whether they were in Montana, uh, in other uh, states. It went over uh, the stealth bomber base. <laughs> You know, I mean, if this was just air currents, uh, the meteorologist uh, should get an order of mile uh, out of this uh, effectively. W you know, talk a little bit about how what the reportage around this was uh, from China. Right. I mean, at first it was an apology. Uh, then it was indignation that it was shot down. Uh, then it acknowledged that there was another balloon over uh, Latin America and it uh, downed that balloon or, or somehow self-destructed. Um, and then sort of take us into the other news of the week, because we've got stuff from Korea uh, to the posthumous uh, autobiography of Shinzo Abe uh, that was sort of interesting, right? I mean, just a lot of stuff here. So just sort of walk us through all of this uh, so that the audience is sort of up to speed on, on what, what has been an extraordinarily busy week. Two sides of the coin on the balloon issue. One of them is what exactly does this represent as part of a larger surveillance threat, a larger espionage threat? 
And clearly the government is only just getting their arms around this. That's the alarming thing. It's not the one balloon. It's really the fact that we only had apparently a classified report circulating in the last four weeks about the surveillance airship program of apparently the strategic support force of China. And if it is run by the strategic support force of China, the reason that's important is because that was the body set up eight years ago to, to basically integrate space, cyber, let's call it near space now, uh, political warfare, electronic warfare into informationized warfare. So you can see with the balloon program, if that's being run by the strategic support force, um, part of the PLA, they're both political warfare messages and they're surveillance messages in terms of trying to prep the battlefield. We don't even know exactly what everything they were trying to steal because they could steal cell phone, mobile phone conversations. They could right. they could look at the radars, the the equipment they had on that because the and here's where maybe Chris's point he, he didn't mention I don't think the the U the U two um, sort of declassification. This is another instance where U.S. government is leaning forward on, on trying to provide uh, what is ordinarily just classified information, put it out there in public. Um, but it's but in doing that, we're also highlighting the fact that we're catching up as a government with this threat, which is part of a larger surveillance threat. China's doing a lot of things here. They're signaling about they can throw, they can threaten our homeland as we encroach on their uh, sphere of influence, that they can prep the battlefield and know exactly what we're doing with our ICBM radars. Um, they can intercept calls. Um, they can play information warfare. So um, it was an interesting, uh, you know, steep learning curve for America that we're still learning from and sharing with allies. And now we're finding out so many allies and partners have experienced, even though they're not also aware of what they've seen. Um, they, they, uh, we certainly know Taiwan has experience on this issue. We need to be sharing those lessons. And then this, the other side of this coin is all right. Going forward, we, I know we got. I have a lot of hearings about what happened with this one balloon, but what is our policy? What are our rules of engagement? What kind of systems do we need so that we can detect it as it enters our airspace? Um, and then we can uh, neutralize it, take it down, um, snag it, whatever we need to do in the future, because this near uh, space space is, is now going to be exploited. It's a new part of modern warfare is what the People's Liberation Army has said in the last couple of years. So um, we have to recognize and catch up with this uh, reality. We've been, we've been ignoring it because it's not the high end of missiles. Um, it's not satellites. It's not on the ground. Uh, it's not on the sea. So this is another layer of the modern warfare battlefield that we have to prep for, and we have to get serious about it. So that's in addition to all the good arguments about politics and about what we do, we do have to decide on those rules of the road. The discussion clearly was um, on, uh, you know, how early do we want to shoot down? Are we setting a bad precedent for our own surveillance, for our own strategic reconnaissance operations or freedom navigation operations? And my answer there is, no, we've got to take some risk on that. As long as we are in international waters or airspace, even just 12 miles in one foot, um, that's sufficient. Uh, when it starts to come into, you know, six miles away or, you know, from our shores, um, whether it's Alaska or Hawaii or, or any part of the United States, um, we should be able to take down this kind of foreign intrusion. Uh, we knew it was not a weather plane, a weather balloon, but we didn't know that for certain, I think, until those U-2 uh, uh, reconnaissance planes flew by multiple times, took lots of pictures, saw the SIGINT, collection uh, you know apparatus on the on the balloon and then started to piece it together with this PLA surveillance airship program so uh, just uh, real uh, quickly did this put us closer to conflict or not right and was this a win for the chinese or actually a big fail especially if the united states can roll out this was being controlled by China. These are the capabilities that they are, right? We have a vehicle they did not want us to have. And we studied it pretty closely, right? I mean, it wasn't just U2s around it. There were rivet joints around it. Um, these are pretty profound capabilities. There was a danger that the Chinese were collecting on us as we were collecting on them. Uh, but what's your sense in terms of whether this increases the chance of conflict or, or whether... We, are, we have already slid into conflict and maybe don't quite recognize it yet. Or, or I, I think the yeah. Chinese are in conflict with us, right? We're, <laughs> we're the ones that are a little bit slow in reacting to this, but just want to get your sense before you, we, we get your sense on Abe uh, and, and then go to Ukraine real quick. Right. Well, another way to look at it would be, all right, we have this intensifying great power competition. To what extent is it going to become kinetic? And uh, the answer is it's increasingly likely that we're going to have at least incidents and they could blow up uh, or we could even have a much larger scale uh, confrontation, say, over Taiwan. 
clearly China's prepping the battlefield, clearly China's working on all of these domains, um, and we are not fully up to speed on what they're doing. So, I mean, I think that's the message of urgency of learning, understanding, better intelligence, sharing with allies and partners, and, and figuring out uh, quickly what we need to do uh, when this happens over and over again. Because whether it's an airship or a drone, and whether it's over U.S. airspace, over allied airspace, over Taiwan, uh, we're going to see this happen with increasing frequency. So therefore, is more is conflict more likely? Well, yes, probably just because you have all those potential flashpoints. Um, but is conflict all-out war likely? No, it's not likely. It's just possible um, because deterrence, big powers, uh, still uh, operates in most scenarios. Uh, Shinzo Abe's oh, yes, okay. uh, uh, posthumous uh, uh, autobiography in, in which he, he has uh, some pretty tough words about uh, America's uh, uh, 45th president. You know, Shinzo Abe was uh, the ultimate uh, Japanese blue blood uh, and held his cards close to his vest, even with his closest advisors. So you didn't really get to see Beyond the Veil very often. And here's this book posthumously published just this past week in Japan, um, which has uh, his own uh, some of his own real thoughts about Donald Trump, especially when he was when President Trump was negotiating with North Korea. Now, granted, uh, the president was trying to probe, uh, you know, could we get a deal with North Korea? But but the point here is really an inside look at what Prime Minister Abe was thinking. His thinking was that the American president was about to sell out as fast as he could to get a deal with North Korea, was going to run away from the denuclearization goal, and he's going to leave Japan, and by the way, South Korea, which is fears it has an extended deterrence crisis right now, you're going to leave them uh, permanently with a North Korea that has nuclear weapons in South Korea and Japan without nuclear weapons. So that was the concern, and he expressed this in no uncertain terms, as well as the fact that um, Trump's advisors did not want this to get out, because if, they, if, if Prime Minister Abe knew how dovish, if you will, the uh, Trump was on some of these issues, including whether we needed carriers for deployed, for goodness sakes, the president apparently said, you know, let's keep them at home and save money. They don't need to be out there doing power projection. Um, and, um, you know, it, it sounds like President Trump, at least on you know Tuesdays, Fridays and, and Sundays, um, but it wasn't U.S. policy, fortunately. But here was Abe, who was, remember, the first leader to get into uh, then President-elect Trump's uh, you know, office uh, in New York. Um, he, he built a very close rapport and worked the president uh, very well. Prime Minister Abe had a great relationship. And yet here were his deep thoughts that he really was worried about American leadership. And this just as a reminder, this is not the first time that our closest allies, Japan, Korea and others, Australia even, have had times in the last in the post-World War II world where they have doubted American reliability. So we have to be at least aware that from, from the perspective of even our closest allies, we are not always 100% predictable about where we're going to be tomorrow with a new leader. Uh, in, uh, in Indeed, although I have to say, Patrick, you were joining us very regularly and the timidity was, uh, right, I mean, unmaskable. So whether or not they try to do so after the fact, uh, you know, none of these were portrayals of of uh, strength, right? Uh, rather, uh, telegraphing weakness, which is which is the problem, right? Anytime we try to be prudent, we might actually be signaling to our uh, potential adversaries uh, that uh, we are uh, too timid, right? So even if they're exactly. statements that are being made by Mike Milley, uh, Mark Milley, it, it, it is regarded as weakness, not as you know. Well, we're just being prudent. Uh, uh, ultimately, and I'm not trying to uh, select the chairman for particular criticism. Um, we've got uh, a, a lot more to discuss and not a lot of time. Dove, uh, talk to us um, a little bit uh, about um, uh, Vladimir Zelensky's visit, very powerful address uh, at uh, the, the uh, Great Hall there uh, with its, uh, you know, I mean, truly uh, one of the most impressive structures, oldest hammer beam ceiling uh, and uh, uh, in uh, all of uh, Europe, uh, truly a medieval hall, but one also with enormous historic uh, significance. And Volodymyr Zelensky made history, um, called on uh, aircraft, met with uh, the king, uh, you know, an accomplished pilot and somebody with uh, joint military experience, which is as a sovereign, he has to have. Uh, and then Zelensky also went to NATO at a time when Russia is stepping up its campaign. Uh, and it looks like Russia, that Ukraine is actually running out of capability as the Russians really do mass uh, in order to do some significant damage as the first anniversary draws near. Walk us through the UK part of this, where we are in NATO. Obviously, Verkunda is next weekend. Uh, and, and so there's going to be, uh, or over the weekend, so there's going to be a lot of focus there. 
um, you know, sort of walk us through all of these themes and where we are uh, on uh, the war, because Washington has a tendency of saying like, oh, it's it's all over. You know, the Ukrainians have won. And all, all of a sudden it's dawning on Washington. Hey, wait a minute. What do you mean there's more war to come? Right. Which is absurd. Well, uh, first of all, I'd like to link what uh, Patrick said to this, because when we this was not the first time, as we know, that a balloon flew over us. And it wasn't the first time that we knew a balloon was flying over us. And so allies are going to ask, do these guys have their act together? Do they simply build big weapon systems and don't think about how to actually operate? And that's very scary because we want to keep the allied coalition together, not just vis-a-vis China, as Patrick has eloquently pointed out many times, but vis-a-vis Ukraine, which is here and now and urgent. And in that respect, you have to look at the British and frankly, beginning with Boris Johnson at taking the lead. They were the first ones who sent out the tanks or announced they would. And now it looks like they're going to be the first ones to send out aircraft. The, the Zelensky goes to parliament and says, give us wings of freedom. I mean, this guy, you know, he, he could have been the president on West Wing and he was in Ukraine, as it were. Uh, and he knows how to motivate an audience. And the Brits have reported it as literally electrifying parliament. On our side, it's the same old, same old problem. We're slow. We've underestimated the fact that the Russians have always been able to reconstitute, always been able to call up more people, use people as essentially, uh, I don't know, uh, human minefields, if you will. Uh, it's their cannon fodder. It doesn't bother Russia at all. Never has, frankly, until the Russian Revolution. And subsequent to that, it happened again in, in World War II. So we are simply ignoring the reality that right now we talked about a Russian offensive in the spring. But right now it looks like Bakhmut, which is a strategic town, could fall to the Russians despite heroic Ukrainian defenses. There's a serious issue here. And of course, it goes ties back as well with the fact that because everything in our on our side was just in time logistics, we assume that wars would be like a Federal Express delivery. They are not. You, ammunition is always used to a far greater extent than anybody predicts. But we, for you know our own reasons, essentially cut back on that. And that's going to mean a lot of money, which brings me back to the budget. If the defense budget does not provide for a serious restocking of our ammunition, We've got a serious problem, not only in terms of the fact that we won't have the ammunition, but in, again, in terms of our credibility with allies whom we are supposed to protect. Uh, when we spoke to Frank Kendall, uh, Air Force Secretary Kendall, he did indicate that there is going to be uh, that we are going to see investment in um, uh, munitions. Uh, and he uh, you know, we, we did discuss specifically uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. and Chasm ER. The problem with that is if you come in with no real growth and you're investing more in munitions, it means you're investing less in something else. That's Correct. the problem. Uh, in, in, indeed. And I should also say that on this score, uh, Britain deserves very high marks uh, for exhibiting uh, leadership because even though it was done in coordination with the White House, right, well, we've talked about this, Starstreak went, then Stinger followed. N-Laws went, Javelin followed. Armored vehicles, uh, you know, and, and I should point out the United Kingdom has sent uh, seeking helicopters that opens the door uh, for aircraft uh, to go over and also was first on tanks. Uh, really and, and one uh, other, quickly. One other thing, Vago, and that is for the United Kingdom, which is in an economic mess right now, to continue to send money. They've sent nearly five billion dollars to Ukraine when they've got so many problems and strikes of their own. That tells you something as well. Uh, in, in, indeed, it does. And, uh, you know, uh, that said, despite all of this support, you can also see Poland rearming uh, in, in at almost a historic uh, pace uh, to, to bolster uh, its own uh, capabilities, seeing that the neighborhood is now uh, permanently very different. Uh, really quick, uh, terrific piece, as usual, uh, in the Hill uh, on Bibi Netanyahu and how he's actually damaging uh, the economic legacy uh, that he built. Give us a couple of words uh, on that, because... Uh, growing demonstrations has not altered the course uh, of uh, what is a right-wing uh, government in Israel, especially in terms of limits on the court, 
And now we're seeing some economic, real economic impact uh, and whether you think that's going to be sufficient uh, to change uh, the, uh, the administration's uh, position uh, on the courts uh, effectively in the rule of law. Well, look, Netanyahu was probably the best finance minister that Israel ever had. He converted the country from a socialist morass to a free enterprise uh, uh, economy that uh, they became called startup nation. What he's doing now is jeopardizing all of that. Since I wrote my article, which said that about $5 billion worth of business was leaving Israel, more businesses, this is only in two days, more businesses are now leaving. They are out about $7 billion. There's no end in sight. Netanyahu has said, well, you know, we're doing what Western countries have done. Western experts have said this is nothing like what Western countries are run like. Instead, it's more like Poland and Poland's uh, credit rating was uh, reduced. Investment went down. And if that happens to Israel, that country's in deep trouble. Peter, let me just ask one 30 second question uh, on uh, Turkey, uh, Dove. Um, right. I mean, this is an extraordinary human tragedy. And there are accusations that uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan uh, is trying to suppress dissent uh, at the end of the day. I mean, he really is playing with fire. We, we have 15 million people who are left homeless. Uh, you know, every few hours, the death count is unfortunately growing. A lot of places feeling they're not getting the aid, even though the international community appears to be stepping up. What are the implications of, of all of this? Well, you know, the man is up for re-election in May. Uh, he is suppressing dissent. He's suppressing reports about how great the damage is. It's the worst earthquake, I think, uh, in Turkey's history. The last one had 18,000 dead. This one is north of 20,000. He may lose the election over this. But uh, like most autocrats, what does he do? He circles the wagon. He tries to destroy dissent. Um, can he control the message? Not in this world. Uh, in uh, indeed. Uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for today. Everybody, thanks very much. Hope everybody has a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you guys uh, back on again uh, next week. And I should also point out that this weekend marks the 50th anniversary of the repatriation of U.S. POWs uh, from uh, Vietnam. And tomorrow, the American Heritage Museum outside Boston is going to dedicate a uh, an incredible new exhibit to tell the POW story with an actual cell from the notorious Hanoi Hilton uh, and the only one that's outside uh, Vietnam and an incredible story about how uh, it got uh, to the United States and ended up uh, as uh, an important historic uh, exhibit. So there are going to be POWs and military leaders uh, that are going to be up there for that event uh, tomorrow. And so I suggest people, they don't either check it out online or if you're ever in the Boston area, go and visit what is a, an amazing uh, museum. Everybody, thanks so very much again. And to our audience, thanks so very much for joining us. And thanks very much to Bill and their generous support for making this program possible each week. Thanks very much. And we'll see you again on Sunday.